Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Parol. Thank you so much for coming on to ADHD Chatter. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me on to the podcast. Listened to a few of your earlier episodes and really enjoyed them. So it's an honor to be coming on to it today. Oh, fantastic. That's, re- I do, that's really nice to hear. I've genuinely been looking forward to this episode for, for a long time. And there's so many fascinating bits of your story that we could start at. Um, I've got to try and stop myself from jumping ahead. I think just to create that continuity, let's start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would you say is your earliest memory of displaying ADHD traits? It was 100% in school. I think most people who got like a late diagnosis probably also looked back similar to when I did and thought, oh, do you know what? That makes a lot of sense. So I was always really, really bright and I was very good at the subjects that I liked, in particular like maths and science. And I just like smashed through all the all the questions really quickly and then other things which I was just found really boring, like history. Sorry if anyone who's listening is is a history <laughs> fan. Um so I was always like bright bright and talented and um my school reports were were never that great though. I was often getting into trouble. I'd always get separated from whoever I was like sat next to. So there would even if everybody's in alphabetical order, I would make friends with whoever's next to me in the alphabet and they would like intentionally separate us and like completely take it away from the order. And I actually, um, when I went back to my, well, I was at my parents over like COVID and my mum pulled out this like big box of school stuff because I was like, okay, mum, this is why it is a good thing that you're a hoarder because we spent the whole afternoon sitting out in the sun going through all of it, all these arts and crafts, like cute bits. And then I found my school reports and I was like okay here we go and do you know what it was so consistent across the board these are like direct quotes taken from the school reports so um you know her PE teacher says that stuff that I see in registration she's talkative she's easily distracted I feel that Parallel considers some periods like lessons to be less relevant than other subjects and not to warrant her full attention she has allowed herself to become easily distracted, often loses focus in lessons and has distracted others with her silly behavior. And this has hindered her overall progress. So you kind of get the gist. So there was a lot of that in all of like my school reports. And I remember it very vividly. That's, that's so interesting. And um, thank you for being so honest and sharing the quotes from your school reports. That's, that's, a, that's a real insight into your earlier years. And it's clear that hearing you say that that the 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 traits were there that clearly they weren't picked up at that stage yeah when when did when did that happen when i when i actually um when the penny dropped and i and i got the diagnosis was um almost exactly two years ago now so 
it it was all almost a, bit, a little bit of a mistake, and I think it was one of the luckiest things. I think it would have happened eventually, right? Because we're all talking about ADHD now. But um, what happened was there was like a virtual webinar, um, a tech one, but um, somebody called Rachel Morgan Trimmer, um, who I owe a lot to. She she came on and she was talking about neurodiversity, and I was like, oh, that's like really interesting. Started talking about autism, and then when she started talking about ADHD, and I was like, oh my god, are you? talking about me like do you do we have a big brother camera in my house or something what is going on this is me to a t so like going into that i went into that typical adhd hyperfixation mode and i started researching like all night and first thing i did in the morning was put my request into the gp and i said i'm really struggling with my concentration um and it's just getting like so much worse and it's really impacting me and they just put me straight through for a referral which I appreciate is I was quite lucky with it because they actually turned it around in um like about four months but I know that the wait list is is really long so I don't know how how that happened but I know people that spent a lot more time probably researching but I think I always knew this in the back of my head I actually used to joke um when my friends would call me a bit like chaotic and, and erratic and I just bet oh reeks of undiagnosed ADHD <laughs> yeah. like I genuinely used to say that as like a bit of a joke and I was like oh well who's laughing now because yeah. <laughs> it actually was yeah just going back a bit, um, before the diagnosis, because mm-hmm. this is it, this rings true to my story, and I'm interested to know if you are the same. I, I was 34 when I got diagnosed, and up until that point, there was a I was medicating my ADHD subconsciously with things like alcohol, mm. um, and probably not eating amazingly well, and other unhealthy sources of dopamine. Did, did you find you were reaching for unhealthy sources of dopamine? Massively, like for a gr- for a like for pretty much all of my adult life until my like diagnosis, I was just on a path of self destruction in just like every way possible. I just really hated myself. My self esteem was so low. I had no impulse like impulse control management at all. Um, obviously, you know, we've got this whole drinking culture at like uni. So I was drinking like all of the time, but it just actually got like worse and worse. Like I would have so many nights where I was like completely blacked out and don't remember anything and like definitely put myself in actually really dangerous situations as well. Where like, I look back and I'm like, I don't even know how I'm alive right now. Um, And I think one of the things which I didn't realize is so strongly linked to ADHD. And the reason I would drink so much was often when, you know, when you go to like lively bars and clubs and it's so loud and it's so busy and it's so hot and it's so overstimulating. And what I was experiencing at that time when I was out was sensory overload. And then I was self-medicating and self-soothing with alcohol. So if I was out versus a house party, it would be so much worse because of that, like overwhelming, uncontrolled environment and I would never know until it was like actually like too far and similarly with them like the the eating as well so I had an eating disorder from the ages of 17 to 22 um so again like impulse control but also one of the reasons why I struggled with it for so long is because for sort of my entire like childhood and, and going through like uni and school and everything I never felt like I was I was good enough the messaging that I was like receiving not reaching her full potential you're really overwhelming like you're too much can't deal with this and that knocked my self-esteem so low that when I started to lose weight and people started to actually compliment me what with what they thought was a compliment like oh my gosh you look great you've lost so much weight that was actually the validation that I had always seeked so it actually just became such an addiction and I never talked to anybody about it I never talked to like family friends medical professionals which is probably why it took me so long to actually recover in the end because I never accepted that I had a problem with food um, and also my l- relationship with exercise so I would exercise as like punishment for like eating like oh my god I can't believe you ate like 500 calories like for your lunch that that was like unheard of you know for me back then um, but the good thing is is that you know I've been on that like journey with improving my relationship with my self-image which I think again being diagnosed and having medication has massively helped and 
I don't count my calories anymore, my fitness pal, don't know who she is. Um, I focus on like weight training. So I lift really heavy now and I exercise to actually like, you know, treating like my body is a bit more of like a temple. Like it, it really, it really deserves this. I want to be stronger so I can actually lift things, not be like a damsel in distress and, you know, all that kind of stuff rather than just wanting to be like skinny. So yeah, again, totally echoing what you said. It's it's mm. really hard for us that are like undiagnosed because it's not just the ADHD that we like suffer with. It's a lot of other comorbidities as well. Absolutely. And wow, thank you for being so open there. And that is so inspiring to hear what you've been through and where you are now with it. And I think other people listening who might be in a different part of that journey, they might be going through the the, the nasty stuff mm-hmm. still and so to hear you mm-hmm. s- tell that story having come out the other side and being in such a good place yeah. I, I think and I hope yeah. you know now um, yes. is, will be so inspiring to so thank you honestly for being so open about that. That, that I think that will it's help so a lot cathartic. of people yeah I think it's so like I, I, I've actually this is the first like podcast I've actually come on talking about ADHD actually I don't know if I had mentioned that I've done a load of like podcasts to talk about it a lot on like social media and stuff but this is the first time that I'm actually coming and being recorded like telling my story and the reason I want to be so honest about it is so that I can help other people out there as well and I think there's also a bit of like an underrepresentation of people from like minority groups who also have ADHD as well we know that ADHD is is underdiagnosed in in women it's something that we still need to address as well but I think there's also like cultural like differences there so um People might be able to tell, like, from my name. You can't see me right now, but I'm an Indian woman. So um, my parents actually, you know, grew up in India. I was actually born there, but we moved over here when I was, like, two years old. So um, I have, like, pretty much, like, dual, like, citizenship, and we spent a lot of time there. And kind of the way that I was raised and in, like, the home was, you know, a bit more of, like, a traditional, like, Indian household. And I actually have just come back from being in India for... And I went for the first time since my diagnosis... And it is like things like ADHD and neurodiversity are like either very like taboo topics, like they're treated as like mental illness um, or they're like practically unheard of. And I actually never mentioned this to any of my family members. I assume they don't have me on LinkedIn because... It's, I guess not as, not as much of a popular thing there and with their professions etc but I didn't actually mention it once because I you know despite I, I tell it to the world on LinkedIn but I actually didn't feel comfortable talking to my own family about it because I, I just feared being like misunderstood. Well again that's a, that's a double reason to to say thank you for being so brave because it's it's hard enough talking about it sometimes in in the UK and if there is a real cultural difference in yeah. the attitude towards it which which there clearly is from listening to what you've mm. just said then that's a double reason to, yeah. to say thank you for, for being so brave and you might thank there you. might be other people um, listening and it might encourage them to think that they can be a little bit more open with it so, so thank you again yeah. you, you did you. say that you were just broadly you're absolutely right women are misdiagnosed Mm. and picked up later because the and Mm. I believe I'm still on a steep learning curve of this but the sort of stereotypical traits and listed symptoms were done on boys and and male medical models and 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 I'll leave that there but you would misdiagnosed right as, as depression at first yeah Oh my gosh. I was actually, I looked at my request into all the stuff is online, isn't it? For like my GP. So I was, I was looking back on that in preparation for this. And um, I was going through like a really difficult period in, I think like January, 2020. And I put a request into my GP and I said, um, I'm really struggling. I've got really low mood. I've got no motivation for, to do anything. And I've lost interest in things that like I like. And Again, word for word, I said, but when I'm at work or around people and I'm distracted and I'm busy, I'm absolutely fine. But it's like when I'm on my own and I'm not occupied that I like really struggle. Now that to both of us, but like that's alarm bells, right? Because it's like, you know, that isn't typical of like depression because depression doesn't like you know, it is a continuum and like some days you will feel better than others, but it was such a stark contrast in like how I felt when I was out and about and around people versus like when I was actually like on my own. So they diagnosed me with depression. They put me on antidepressants, which wreaked havoc on my body. If anybody listening and if yourself, you've been on like antidepressants, they are very like they're, they're brutal 
like drugs and um, like the side effects are like absolutely horrible and I just realized they weren't doing anything I ended up going like cold turkey um which was quite a while before my diagnosis actually because I was like I'm not doing this anymore it's definitely like not depression and I noticed no difference after I came off them so that's how I knew it was a misdiagnosis it's I mean it's clearly a massive massive problem and your first-hand example of 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 how big a problem it is mm. would you think you're do you display quite daydreamy traits or are you quite hyperactive this is an interesting one because on my assessment um and I actually look back on it so I was diagnosed with inattentive type ADHD so of course we have inattentive type hyperactive um impulsive type and also combined type and when I look back on my assessment I realized the way that I answered the questions was based on all of these coping mechanisms and strategies and masking that I'd actually put in place so I actually think that was also potentially misdiagnosed I actually I'm, I'm quite certain that I am combined type as well but leaning more towards the inattentive side and a lot of my hyperactivity is internalized like my brain is going a million miles an hour and I didn't even know this right that it's not normal to have a constant internal monologue that go cycles through about 100 things a minute I didn't know that wasn't normal did you <laughs> no I didn't I thought, no I didn't I thought everyone does that right like that's totally normal so I do struggle with like you know with definitely with like sitting still like I'm quite fidgety Um, I have like a standing desk I've also got like a little mini treadmill that goes under the desk so I can like um like work while I walk traveling is like absolute hell for me because it's like overstimulation but under stimulation like at the same time like I can't move around enough I can't like do things but I think I get affected most by my inattentive symptoms so I look like I'm listening. I'm probably not listening. I realize I zone out of like conversations. Um, I struggle to keep like myself like organized. So I would say like, yeah, definitely both, but more inattentive sides. Mm, I think so many people will listen to that and, and relate. I definitely do. And we can look at someone in the eye, directly in the eye and not hear a word that they say until yeah. they, uh, you know, they'll speak to us for a minute. We're staring at them directly in the eye and they'll say, what do you think, Alex? And suddenly yeah. I snap back into it and I've no idea what they just said over the last minute. Um, I don't know yeah. if that's something is what you relate to. Yeah, all the time. And I find it harder in like group settings. So whenever I have like one to one like conversations or like meetings, I can sit and talk to people for like hours. I have absolutely no problems. But any kind of like group conversations or like meetings that are over like 30 minutes, I'm like, that's it. Like I completely checked out. And that's what you just said. That's happened to me before when they're talking about something. I turned out and like, Pearl, what do you think? And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't been listening for the, like, the last like five minutes. And I've like, got all these doodles <laughs> on my pad. And I remember seeing your LinkedIn <laughs> post recently, actually. Like you doodle quite a lot when you're on like meetings and stuff, don't you? I do. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't have an example on me right now. But yeah, my right hand, or it just happens to be my right hand because I'm right handed is constantly doodling. Um, it's not today because I'm conscious of the sound being picked up. But yeah, if I'm on a normal meeting, the, the audio is important. I can draw a masterpiece. Um, but it's completely abstract. It's boxes and pyramids and yin yangs and, and squiggles. Do you do the same? I actually do. I actually have like an adult coloring book, but it's nothing like intricate. It's more like geometric. Um, and this was something that was actually recommended to me by somebody because I was like, you know, I'm struggling on like meetings. Sometimes I'm the note taker. Even that I get like distracted. And then what they basically recommended is that like engage your brain with something which is kind of like, low intensity like for your brain so it's not like you know replying to emails because that requires some executive like functioning but keeping yourself occupied with something or the other when you're on a meeting and now I think this is the difficult part because this is the whole thing about like you know like masking and reasonable adjustments in like the workplace like I make it very clear it's like I might not be looking at the camera I may well be looking down I'm not on my phone I'm probably doodling coloring in playing with my fidget toy but because I'm doing that I can pay better attention to what you are saying but I think that's something that society finds very hard to accept because it's this like neurotypical norm of if you're not looking me in the eyes you're not paying any attention but they don't realize me looking away means 
I understand what you're saying much, much better. Mm, yeah, no, it's so relatable. Um, eye contact is something I struggle with massively. And just going back to the, the doodling, I, I, I'm not doodling right now, but I am constantly mm -hmm. playing with this pen. Yeah. My, and I'm trying to keep it out of camera. And every time I do these podcasts, I'm constantly playing with the pen. And my the fingertips have got loads of pen marks on them. Um, and I don't think, yeah. like you said, it's exactly what you said. It's keeping your brain busy with something that requires mm. a tiny amount of mm. focus and then that actually mm -hmm. enables me to really concentrate on what you're saying if yeah. we had meetings walking around a park or running yeah. uh wow they would be so much more better but i realize realistically that's that's not practical but all my ideas come to me when i'm running or or moving like you said sit me down in an office or a meeting room and and tell me to be static and you're not going to get much from me yeah like we need we need stimulation that's i mean that's what adhd is right it's it's you know it's proven to be a you know a neurodevelopmental disorder we have a dopamine deficiency and if we don't get that we struggle with our lack of you know with our executive functioning so i think that's a big part of getting a diagnosis as well it was just about like understanding myself better and how my brain works and i'd spent 25 years masking and trying to conform to neurotypical um you know conform to like neurotypical norms and i just realized that i can't do it any longer i'm completely burning out but i think we still have quite a long way to go before it is accepted by society but i think one of the things that I really work hard on is is normalizing this like a little bit more so um i do quite a bit of like public speaking like panels and everything and i actually started it in covid when everything was like virtual which was great to just segue into it um but then things started going in person and i found it really nerve-wracking even it was stuff I, I knew like the back of my hand um and for the first time ever it was about a month ago I was up on a stage um, for an event for International Women's Day and we were sat on like chairs so I wasn't behind a podium or anything so you could see everything and I actually took my fidget toy up with me and I actually called it out in my introduction to the room of people. It was also being recorded and um, you might notice that I've got a fidget toy. I have ADHD and I'm quite nervous to be honest and it really helps me um, like stay focused and stay engaged and I also really want to like normalise it so I think it's that kind of stuff like we just need to see like a little bit a little bit more i think mm, definitely well done for for doing that Thanks. little things like that will play yes. a huge part in just normalizing it um yes. so well done i think that's that really is amazing and more people are speaking about it which is good more people are speaking out about it you're a big voice on on linkedin you know so people will look at you and they'll listen to this podcast and they'll hear they'll hear you telling that story as well and it will just slowly we'll see change that's that's yeah. that's what i think i genuinely think and that's what gives me actually quite a lot of hope and i can see so much change actually has happened just in quite a short period of time and looking forward over the next five ten years i i can really see the trajectory going up and it's thanks to people like you just doing little things which you might think is a little thing like that but actually that's yeah. quite a symbolic act to go on stage and say i have a fidget toy yeah. because i have adhd and it helps and people might go oh actually, actually yeah um maybe that's cool that i can i can take one on stage when i do a talk and it might just help someone yeah absolutely and you know what i should credit her as well i actually got the idea from ellie middleton who is um if you are listening to this and you don't follow her like you definitely should she's a um, neurodivergent creator and she um actually put a picture and i think it was probably quite quite a bigger audience that she was like speaking to when she had a fidget toy in her hands and i was like yeah do you know what if ellie can do it i can do it as well and it's just normalizing it and actually at that event that i was speaking at and i mentioned and i took the fidget toy up and um, there was a girl that came up to me afterwards and she said that i was actually diagnosed with adhd as like a child so she she's had a diagnosis for quite a while and i've never disclosed it to any of my employers what do you feel like is holding you back from it how how do you feel about it do you feel like disclosing will actually help you and i, I didn't give her any you know solid answers but what I did there and the conversation afterwards got her thinking a little bit. So whether she does decide to go and disclose um, in the future, I really hope that she does. But, you know, by doing that, if I've just helped one person, then I've done my job. Mm. You've got an amazingly inspiring story about a, a legal issue, a legal battle, really, you had with, a, with an ex-employer. Yeah. And I, I want to get to yeah. that. I think that's a fascinating bit. Um, I want to yeah. just 
rewind a, a tiny bit and go back to the diagnosis mm. because I'd had some a, a question I was desperate to get the answer to. How did you? Because I, I I felt a number of things after my diagnosis, which I've talked about in previous episodes. How did you feel mm. after your diagnosis? It was a bit of a surreal moment, to be honest, because by the point I was going into the, the diagnosis, I already knew. I was like, there is not a chance that I'm walking away with this. And you're like, they're like, no, you don't have ADHD. But I don't know what your assessment was like, but mine felt really like tick boxy, transactional, going through each section on like the form. And then just at the end of the hour, this was all like virtual as well. And it was like, um, yep, so we're diagnosing you with ADHD. You've got inattentive type. We'll be in touch in, in a month to arrange for like your medication. And and like that was like literally it. And I was like, so it just felt like very like anticlimactic. And then I went through all the stages of grief. Um, I went through denial actually for about six months. I actually gaslit myself that something um, has been missed here. I was like, well, well, I don't do this. I am not that bad today. I can't have ADHD, but people have it much worse than I do. I think they've got it mixed up here genuinely for about like six months. I kind of accepted it, but I really didn't in the back of my head. Um, I was angry, um, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, about the school reports, because I felt like I had missed out on so much and suffered with being unmedicated, untreated, unsupported. And all of that, like, constant, like, negative, like, messaging, like, took down my self-esteem so much that even, like, years later, I'm still trying to build up that self-confidence. And, like, from the outside and probably even when I'm sat here and I'm talking about this, I seem like a really confident person, but I'm really not. I actually still doubt myself so much. Um, I'm a people pleaser, which just means that I can't say no to people. I take on so much work, so much stuff like outside of work. I don't, I struggle to set boundaries. I end up like burning out. And one of the things which I kind of, I got over, but it really affected me a lot at the time was the fact that because I struggled at school, I'd convinced myself that I didn't have the self-discipline to go and study medicine at university um, because that was what I had originally wanted to do because, well, it's all I knew and my mum and dad were doctors and they never kind of pushed me towards it or never pressured me towards it, but I wanted to do it because I thought that they were really cool. They are really cool and I really wanted to make them proud and you know keep it keep on like the family and um I just thought do you know what I started to write my personal statement I thought I can't do this I can't do this it requires so much work and um, it requires being on like your feet all the time you're doing like your placement people's lives are in your hands I cannot bear that responsibility and realizing that I was never gonna be able to study medicine and be a doctor was really really like it was so difficult for me. Um, looking back at like the school reports as well, knowing how much like trouble I got into, I ended up getting into a fight, which I actually didn't start, just to preface this. I've never <laughs> talked about this publicly, by the way. Um, so it was another girl had started the fight and I fought back, which in hindsight was obviously not the best idea, but as a 16 year old, you're not really the best um, sort of like judge of like character. So that's what I did. I can't remember, I either got suspended or I almost got suspended. And understandably, my parents were absolutely furious. So again, that's something that I feel like I could have like definitely avoided as well. There's just so many things throughout my life where I look back and think, what if? What if I knew? What if I was medicated? What if I had the support? But, you know, I always really like to look at like the positives of it as well. Um, I'd like to have not have had to have gone through like a lot of these things, but I think a lot of it has shaped the past, the, the, you know, shaped me into the woman that I am today, seeing how I was treated by other people and like friends as well um, means that, I treat people really well and I go out of my way for them because I never want anybody to feel the way that I like ever really felt. So since the diagnosis, it's just been just a whole journey of like self-reflection, like really, I do wish that it would have happened sooner. And I was 25 when I got the diagnosis and I do appreciate for like some people that it is definitely a lot later in life, but I think sometimes when like the damage is done um 
it's also like quite hard to to undo. Um, I don't know if you've ever actually seen this um like stat before, but um I think it was William Dodson did um like a study and he estimated that children with ADHD receive a full twenty thousand more negative messages by age 10 than other children. And as children, we are so impressionable. We look up to the people around us and the adults around us. And I think we carry a lot of that negative messaging and insecurity into our adult life. And I still see it in myself today. I've been through therapy, had CBT, ADHD coaching, all of those things. And we're actively working on this and I've seen it improve, but like the damage still isn't undone, if I'm totally honest. Mm, gosh, that, that 20,000 excess negative messaging is so sad and it you know if if we have 20,000 extra negative messages then maybe that's why some people have this subconscious imposter mm -hmm. syndrome where we are good at some things but our subconscious mm -hmm. doesn't let us believe that we're good at some things so yes. we could be standing on stage or we could be really good at our profession but we just don't believe it we don't think yeah. that we're deserving of what we've done and maybe it's because we had twenty thousand extra messaging saying that we're that we're yeah. not good enough that you know that there's there's a there's an interesting thought you you yeah. said you have imposter syndrome and and mm. i think that's very common with 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 people adhds um mm. do you think that you had imposter syndrome when you were thinking about going into medicine you said it was all that you knew did you did you have a passion for it I have a passion for helping people and that's what I do um in my job now which I'll talk about a little bit later on and the idea of being able to save people and help people always really resonated with me like when my mum and dad would come home and like talk about their day and I was just like completely enchanted by it and I'm going to be completely honest, had I have gone for it and got into medicine and studied medicine, I'm, I'm still undiagnosed. I'm quite convinced I would have either failed or had dropped out because it's really, really difficult and you do require a lot of discipline. And there are doctors out there who do have ADHD, right? But when you look at like, you know, obviously being on like placement and everything, there's so many things that you have to also like memorize as well so you can't be like referring to like notes and things like all the time and like my short-term memory is like absolutely like awful so I think was it a little bit of like the imposter syndrome but I think when I look back at the like the reality I don't think I would have succeeded doing that being undiagnosed anyway. Mm. There's, there's similarities between my journey into university I won't go into that now but I mm -hmm. went to university and I I I ended up getting kicked out after a year because I just mm. couldn't concentrate and just couldn't focus, had no motivation, couldn't, didn't go to university, mm. didn't go to lectures. Um, yeah. And now I look back and I'm thinking it was under, undiagnosed ADHD. If I had the awareness and mm. the coping mechanism in place, things could have been different. But it's just mm. one of those things. Now I look back and I don't beat myself up over it too much. Yeah. But it's interesting to hear you say that because it's when you said you think that it would have not worked out because you didn't have the med medication or mm. just the general coping mechanisms to, mm. to manage your ADHD that you probably would have left or not seen it through. Mm. And that's exactly yeah. what, what happened in, in, in my, to me when I did go to university. And, and mm. it's, so what happened to me was exactly what you think would have happened to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you got so it does comfort me a little bit knowing that I I made the right choice and it took a while to like get here but now I'm in a career that is you know it's it's like well paid it's it's stable the work that I do is like so fulfilling I have so many different doors that are open like I started in like tech recruitment I've moved into like recruitment marketing I do stuff like community engagement and events and everything and I would have been stuck in like, no offense, but I would have been stuck in one career with probably one employer at the NHS for the rest of my life. And I think, you know, what's meant to happen will happen. So I feel like that was just like the universe's way of like making things like work out for me. And I'm so happy that things actually happen that way because I genuinely love what I do and I wouldn't change it for the world. Mm, that's amazing. Genuinely amazing to hear. And, and I'm this is the this is the the story that I was really excited to hear as well. You got diagnosed and then you started working for a company and you didn't have the best experience with them, right? 
Yeah, so um, I was actually working for this startup, um, my ex, my last employer, at the time of like diagnosis. So I'd already been there for a year. I was actually hired as the first um, employee. Um, so like very, very small. We were never bigger than eight people at the biggest. So, you know, like pretty, pretty tiny. And when I joined, it was COVID anyway. Um, and just the nature of like the work in the company, it was all like fully, pretty much fully remote. We never had an office to go into. It was always like pretty like flexible, which like works, work like pretty well for me. So all those things were pretty much like company, like standard anyway, which is quite nice. Um, but then when I got my diagnosis and I kept them in the loop with everything, you know, because because again, it was such a small company who spent so much time together. I used to tell them like a lot about my life. So they had like every update that like, oh, I went to this webinar, like I think I've got ADHD, speaking to the GP, oh, I'm having my referral, like they knew everything. And then when I actually got that diagnosis and then like I told them like the news and they were like, oh, like that's great, congratulations. And then there was like nothing else really like they didn't try to like talk to me about it like okay what does ADHD like actually mean like how does it like affect you like what are the areas of work that like you maybe struggle with like what support can we actually like put in place like pretty much nothing the things that I just mentioned earlier which are offered as like a standard you know they always like remain so they couldn't take those away from me because it was the company ways of like working but because it was like agency recruitment there was a lot that I really really struggled with but I think looking in hindsight site could have like had a bit of help with and even just I'm just setting up a little bit of a meeting and just being like hey shall we like talk through this like we want to be able to like support you like that would have meant so much and I think you know anybody listening to this who your direct report comes to you and lets you know that they've got like a diagnosis is you know open don't force them to do it but offer the option to sit and and learn more about it or like be curious and I think something which is quite a stark contrast to that is when I joined my current company um, and my um, line manager when I was in the recruitment team Lorraine she wanted to read like articles about ADHD and um, she would like talk about it in like our one-to-ones as well like really make an effort to like understand me and she asked me for feedback on like the team meeting once because she was like like how is the team meeting you know just for, for you like specifically and because she asked me that um, and I gave really honest feedback on it about like how it wasn't working for me and um, she then implemented some changes in like the next team meeting which involved breaking it into sections having an estimate of how much time we're going to spend on each thing changing the order like a little bit so it's a lot more like structured and a little bit more time bound with some flexibility and everybody really benefited from that actually so it ended up reducing our team meeting from like it pretty much used to fill the whole hour but sometimes we'd actually finish it off in like 30 minutes so that's the difference that it makes and her just like asking about it and just like being curious and keeping the conversation going actually not just in my first week but like ongoing made me feel so much more like accepted and like supported and it meant that like I found my feet really quickly I've gone from like a little agency startup of like eight people to like a big company of we were just over like 200 like people at that point in a little bit of a different role because it's like an internal role but because I didn't feel like I needed to mask I didn't feel like I needed to be somebody who I wasn't I felt like I could like voice anything that like wasn't working for me it just made such a difference so yeah that was like completely different to what I got in like the last company really it's such good advice because a lot of companies might think that putting accommodations in place is going to be expensive or it's going to be time consuming mm -hmm. but actually just having an ear or mm -hmm. being, being willing to open your arms and say let's have a conversation I want to learn about mm -hmm. ADHD or other neurodivergent conditions yeah. it doesn't really cost anything it might might take a mm -hmm. bit of time not much time but just having that welcoming attitude will enable someone mm -hmm. like to open up and just feel like they're in a culture or in a company that is really willing to adapt yeah. and evolve and really that's not going to cost much yeah 100 i think i don't want to misquote this but i think somebody works out like the average cost of like a, a reasonable adjustment and i think it's like maybe like 70 pounds or something but obviously a lot of them are like free but some of the other things might be some equipment and stuff like that so there's a lot of stuff that you can do but again employers do have a legal obligation so and even as like smaller companies you can't use the size of the company or the finances as a reason to reject um 
like reasonable adjustments, which is actually something which did happen at the startup. So obviously, you know, I had like the diagnosis and, and everything and I started like medication. When I actually started medication, actually, um, because it's agency recruitment, so, it's, you know, it's effectively like sales. I went from like zero to a hundred. It was like unbelievable. And because my base salary was like really low, like I really relied on that commission. Do you know what I mean? So I just ended up like literally from like the month after I got like my medication, I was going from billing, like I literally billed like eight times more than I did in like the previous like six months, which is just like absolutely insane. So, you know, things are like really like ramping up, like expectations like going up. Um, and then there was a whole load of things that actually happened, which eventually led to a tribunal, which happened at the time of recording this podcast about 10 days ago, which I fortunately won. And there's a lot in that, but I just want to, because obviously the topic of this podcast, just cover the disability discrimination. So I think first of all, to maybe like we can address like, do we think ADHD is a disability? Because I think that's a whole like sort of topic in itself so what what do you think yeah it's a great question and I'll, I'm going to be completely honest here when I got diagnosed with ADHD I nearly put a LinkedIn post out saying something along the lines of I have ADHD and I don't identify as being disabled um, mm -hmm. but then I stopped myself because I genuinely mm. actually think it has disabled me in many many ways looking back it's enabled me in some ways and it has disabled me in many ways and I didn't post that out and I'm so pleased that I didn't because it mm. is not true because you sort of fall into the trap of thinking I I run marathons I can do all this you know I'm quite a physical person I'm not disabled but actually yeah. my mind stops mm. me from doing so much um, I can walk yeah. into a supermarket and burst into tears because I can't remember what I'm going to buy. Um, I yeah. can't organize things in, in line to do what I know I'm capable for doing. Um, and that can lead to horrendous mental health effects. You can feel hopeless, depressed, all sorts of mm -hmm. things that have happened in the past. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 100%, I believe it's a disability. Yeah. And, I, and I'm mad at my past self for, mm -hmm. for, for jumping on that idea that it's not just because I didn't have a physical disability mm -hmm. um, I, I, I struggle to differentiate the physical and the mental disability I think mm -hmm. so yeah 100% yeah. I think it is yeah and I think there's still a lot of like like stigma around that as well and I can give a very recent example of flying um so Again, I just didn't really, you know, you think like about like disabilities as, you know, people are like wheelchairs and you should let them have like the help that's like on offer because it's, you know, you think it's much more like, like disabled and everything. But at the end of the day, it's not a competition and places like airports and stuff have legal obligations to support like disabled passengers. And I am disabled by the social model of like disability, which is different to the medical model. So it's not, I'm not disabled myself, but I'm disabled by my environment because of the world that is built around me. So flying is a great example of that. I also suffer from chronic migraines, which actually makes me doubly disabled. And um, so that is also, yeah, also a condition which is defined as a disability so flying is so difficult for me so last year when I went on holiday for the first time I actually contacted passenger assistance to request assistance um it was last time was an okay experience coming back so Manchester airport a little bit better airports outside of the UK not as clued up and like educated on it they were like uh, what, what do you need do you need a wheelchair I said no I don't um need a wheelchair this is my condition this is the support that I need and I get from passenger assistance and they're like right okay um I remember being taken to the front of um like security at Manchester airport and getting all these looks from people because they're like oh, she's got some flower lanyard on and she's getting pushing to the front but she can obviously use her legs do you know what I mean and the worst I mean so that's you know not as bad but not ideal but the worst experience I had was um this year when I went to India a few weeks ago and booked in all the passenger assistance and everything went to the little area Manchester airport and they were like okay perfect you know I've got your name here if you just go to the um like assistance lane for security and they'll take you through so I was like oh amazing so we get to there I've got my sunflower lanyard on as well to indicate that I have a hidden disability um and the woman who's on there she says um no you need to go to the other the main entrance and it's like um 
I, I actually don't. I've just been told that I should go here and I have passenger assistance because I have two hidden disabilities. She was like, no, no, I've got a note here. No, no um, green passes. And then there was one of her colleagues which was stood there and he was like, obviously like mortified. She's like, this is what this lane is for. Like, don't, don't do this. And she just wasn't listening to him. She was being like really, really like snappy and stuff. And I was like, really, it was just quite like traumatizing. Cause I was like, oh my God, I've actually gone out of, a, I've actually taken the plunge to take help that is on offer. And because I'm not visibly like disabled and being told to use the other um, like lanes, like everybody else, despite the fact passenger assistance told me to come here. And there's just loads of like back and forth and eventually spent have you got your boarding passes? And then just like let us through. But like by that point, I was like, oh my God, like my head was just like pounding. I was like really, really stressed. I did actually report this because I do want to state this was a more unusual, um, this is not like a common occurrence. And I do 100% encourage people, get your passenger assistance, use your sunflower like lanyards, just because, you know, you're not in a wheelchair, the support that you can get, like they'll help you, um, you know, get on the plane like earlier. So you don't have to like queue and getting really overwhelmed, sensory overload, you get on the plane first, you know, you have a little bit more time to like settle down, you have access like the quiet rooms, I think it's called like the sunflower room. So there is a lot of help there, but I think again, the point that I'm trying to make is there is still a lot of stigma around hidden disabilities versus physical disabilities, which also mm. do still have it quite bad. But yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's there's a clear stigma and association between the word dis mm. disability and mm. you automatically, or I used to mm. think physical disability. You think a disa yeah. you know, disabled person, you don't automatically jump to that person has something going on in their brain that disables yeah. them. Um, but yeah. now I look back and hearing so many stories, it's so evident that it's a, yeah. that it's, that, that it's there. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah. it's, it, there's, there's stuff, you know, there's a lot to do to convince uh, society at large that that's what's going mm -hmm. on. Um, yeah, absolutely. So with them, um, so going back to the um, the like tribunal thing as well. So employers have a legal obligation, you know, around this. And if if you're not clued up on this, and you run a business or you're in some kind of like HR position, um, you could be setting yourself up for some like serious um like consequences because um employment tribunals involving neurodivergent employees are on the rise. People have more awareness of their rights. Um, and I think it's only going to go up. Um, so I think there was like an increase from like 70 in 2020 to 93. Don't ask me what that is as a percentage, but I think it's gone up again like this year as well. So like I was quite fortunate that I had a lot of support when all of this was actually like going on from a union. So I joined a union called um, UTAW, which is U-T-A-W, which is specifically within tech in the UK. And they've been absolutely fantastic but they helped me obviously with all the things that happened which was effectively um one of the things was um we had a work christmas party and um the two directors um slash like managers um asked me if i had a second to chat and i was like okay that's weird pulled me aside into a room on my own and um looked me in the eye and said we just we were talking and we just wanted to talk to you because we feel like you're talking about ADHD a bit too much on social media. We feel like you're just kind of making it your whole like brand, like personality. And, you know, we just don't want it to like define you and like all of this stuff. And I was like, what on earth possessed you to think? Firstly, this is an appropriate environment to say that in. Um, but secondly, that this is something that is acceptable to say like whatsoever and not that it even matters I think I was maybe doing like one at that point probably like one post every two weeks about ADHD so I don't even care if you class that as like too much something which is not appropriate to say but their intention there was to make me feel uncomfortable to pull me away from the only thing that actually brought me like support. That's why I started posting about ADHD because I didn't, I didn't really know many other people with ADHD and I wanted to get a little bit more of like a community around me and I know loads more people. They knew what that meant to me. They knew exactly what that comment would do and I still don't understand to this day why, why they said it in that like setting 
as well. Like, why, why did you want to like ruin this for me? I'm not really sure. Um, there's a whole lot of loads of other stuff that um, like also ensued off um, like the back of that and other linked claims. Um, but you know, in I think it was like a month or so after that, um, the I was actually off and then I'd come back in and the one of the directors was like, um, I've noticed your working hours in the diary are 7.30 to 4. Can you change those, please? Because we sent out new guidelines when you were off. I was like, oh, can you just forward them to me? Because I didn't see them. And I was like, it said core hours 10 to 4. I was like, but how is this outside of working hours? And I've also worked these hours for seven months at least. And the reason I started working those hours is because... Um, when I started medication, I was actually put on um, extended release methylphenidate and that stays in your system for so long. So if you don't take it first thing in the morning, and I'm talking like literally 6am, um, you're not sleeping at night. It affects people differently, obviously. Um, but that was like, you know, that was the reason I was doing that. I've been working those hours for so long and I was like, <laughs> I don't understand why you're asking me to do this. And it's also within like the core hours as well and working my number of hours, I'm still available till the time that I'm like supposed to be. Um, and she was like, no, no, you need to change it. So then I sent in a request as a formal reasonable adjustment to have this, which I've always had. And it was completely ignored. It wasn't even acknowledged. And again, I knew the reason that they were doing that was to target me as part of victimization for like some of the other concerns that I was um, actually like speaking up about which was basically not setting up a pension and like various like other things so it just all kind of like all like linked into each other um and I basically so with support of like the union um we um drafted up a um grievance letter which was actually eight pages long so you can imagine how much stuff was actually in there so I tried to get all of it addressed or resolved and they wouldn't so I had to basically hand it in with my um, with my notice. Um, that then led to an ACAS um, early conciliation, which failed to reconcile, is that word? I don't know what it is. You know, we, we they, they basically, they just um, rejected like everything. And then it went to a tribunal and this has been ongoing for um, almost like the past like 18, 18 months now. Um, and the tribunal happened last week on Monday and I actually ended up winning. And because I had the support of the union that I'm in as well, I fortunately didn't incur any legal costs, which is absolutely amazing. And even if it, even if you're not at the point where it's like, this is really bad, I need to leave, grievance, all of those sorts of things, which is all the stuff I went through. Even if it's stuff like needing a bit of a sounding board in terms of like, what are my legal rights here? Because again, there is a little bit of a blurred line with like the law and you know reasonable adjustments and discrimination and indirect discrimination and harassment on the basis of a disability so something else that i really recommend to people is like read up on your rights join a union if you can because they can help you with these things as well as like the big stuff so yeah that was a whole thing and it took so long it really drained me i've suffered with insomnia for pretty much like almost like the past like year and a half just purely because of the stress started in started to impact like my life at home did impact like my work like a little bit as well and I tried to do everything in their power to convince me that I would um that I wouldn't win and um, they actually put in the grounds of resistance which is basically the legal term for the response to my claim they actually put we do not accept that the claimant is disabled and made me prove it which they knew I would be able to do, but it also still seemed like another attempt to just like something else to like get at me because I wasn't working there anymore and they, they couldn't reach me. So it was the year and a bit from hell. Um, it's not for the faint hearted, but it's probably that justice sensitivity that I get with having ADHD as well. Like I have to stand up for what is right. And I knew that it was I was right and what they were doing was wrong and it was just the biggest relief ever like I, I actually I rang my mum afterwards and I, and I was just like crying I was like mum I, mum I won like I did it and I just you know what I couldn't believe it so thank you for letting me talk about that because it is the first time that I've been able to talk about it because it has just like recently happened but again I really hope it helps somebody out there who maybe doesn't know how to like deal with with these things so yeah that was the tribunal in a nutshell wow i think there'll be a load of people listening peril that are cheering and clapping right now um into their headphones listening to you tell that story that is incredibly inspiring and it will set a precedent most importantly Mm -hmm. um in the 
legal database for an example so when other people get find themselves in a bad situation the precedent will be there and it will be a, it should be a faster process thank you for going through that um for yourself and I, on behalf of the community i feel like people are going to hear that story and feel like they're not powerless and that they have yeah. an option and companies that aren't compliant and, and aren't putting mm. reasonable adjustments in place um be very worried <laughs> after listening to this i think it's yeah. in, absolutely incredible Thank you so much. And just like you said as well, as I did it for myself, but I did it for, for other people too, to empower them to what they can what they can actually achieve and to not take things from people who have a legal and like moral obligation to look after you as an employee as well. And it's not always gonna be like, you know, the clear discrimination. It can also be like unfair treatment on basis of like your disability as well so being denied a like promotion and like other stuff like that or you know denying like flexible like working requests so I would say like definitely look into it if that's a situation that you've actually been in and I think unions are a really good place to also like get like support so definitely get involved with those if you can but yeah mm. I think I've come a long way from from that point and I think it was really hard to like go through because for I think for maybe like the first year and a half that I was working there it was it was generally really good like as as far as like you know start of life does go it was like really really difficult but then when the relationship started breaking down all of these things started happening it was really hard to deal with but I think it makes me probably even more grateful for working at an employer where I feel like really like supported it feels like Obviously, I'd left there like a year ago, but now I feel like the next chapter of my life actually starts. Like this isn't living rent free in my head anymore. Mm. It's so inspiring, Paral. Thank you so much for for telling Thank that you. story. And I can see that it's it's something you're incredibly proud of, and quite rightly so. It it, it makes you quite emotional because going through a, a legal case is is brutal, and it sounds like you have been through it and can come out. And that's what it all that's what it's all about. You've you've made it worth it for yourself and for the community. So I take my hat off to you Thank and you. I applaud you. Thank you so much on behalf of of me and and behalf of the entire community. And for anyone in the future who has to go through something mm. similar, they'll hear your story and they'll yeah. be motivated and inspired to fight on. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was um I was good getting that out as well. Um again, it's something which I've pretty much had to keep under wraps for like a year I had to you know obviously let my manager know that I was going to be out at like the tribunal and some friends and stuff I was just really scared it's like oh like what if I do something that I'm really like not supposed to I don't really want to like jeopardize anything but like I'm I'm free of the chains now and I'm here to live my best life and that's all that matters absolutely that's so nice to hear I'm going to put all of that all of the advice and links in the show notes for mm -hmm. anyone who might be in a similar situation or mm -hmm. think that they need to contact a union or to get some support so they can mm -hmm. find those in the show notes. Yeah. I think that's a really, really nice place to end this conversation. Where can yeah. people find you if they want to follow you or find out a bit more about your journey? Um, so LinkedIn is probably the best um, like place to find me. So um, Parol Singh. And if you, for whatever reason, don't use LinkedIn, um, I'm also on Twitter. I just changed my handle recently. So I'm just like, what did I actually change it to? It's like <laughs> that thing, you know, we're like, do you ever like change your, change your password on something and you don't actually save it into like the keychain and you get locked out of stuff? So yeah that happens a lot so i've got it so my my twitter handle is adhd tech so that's t-e-c-h rec r-e-c okay perfect that'll be flashing up on the screen um so don't perfect. worry that'll be in that'll be in the video if anyone's watching wow Harold, thank you so much i genuinely appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability your th authenticity and and the, the bravery you. that you've showed in your legal fight going through through the tribunal and I think just mm. generally you have a ton of wisdom and and mm. advice and you really are a figure of inspiration to the community thank so you. thank you for so coming you. on thank you oh thank you so much thank you for Paral. I'd love uh, to uh, <laughs> yeah I'd love to um I look forward to 
what what the future holds and i'll be i'll be keeping an eye on your journey with much interest and, and intrigue and i think you are thank a genuine you. inspiration so thank you so much thank you so much i really enjoyed recording this episode and um like you just said if anyone has like any questions on anything that like we've talked about and um, please do reach out on linkedin i'm always happy to chat with people um i'll also share a link with you um to put into the description of the podcast which is um it's a i think it's like 50 odd like adhd and like neurodiversity resources and it's got stuff about like adhd and like the law reasonable adjustments all that kind of stuff so um i will just plug that so everybody i just wanted to I found it really hard to find like resources and information so I've collated everything that I found over like the last sort of like two years so that will actually like help people but um thank you so much for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure amazing thank you Paral. thank you so much thank you bye-bye Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>